Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It's Monday, August 21st. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Sarasa, a rare afternoon pod, right? You think of day baseball. We have morning pods usually. This is an afternoon recording, so everything looks different if you're watching us on YouTube. Actually, nothing looks different. Maybe, maybe the lighting in my office because of the windows is actually different. Eno looks exactly the same. Eno, how's everything going for you on this Monday? Good. We're scrambling because uh, I'm, we're putting this in between uh, coming back from Yosemite, uh, where we had one of those staff development days, three-day weekends uh, at school. Uh, so we took advantage of that. That's a little hack for anybody listening who wants to go to Yosemite. If you can go after school starts uh, and before the winter, uh, do it. Although... I, what I gather is we were a little bit lucky this year. The extra rain in the spring meant that we were still able to uh, enjoy the river, enjoy the waterfalls. Usually uh, this close to fall, those things uh, start tapering out because of the water. But you could use this hack also maybe in May uh, <laughs> on, the, on the front end. Uh, so uh, it just becomes kind of untenable where they're talking about three to four hour waits in your car to get into the park uh, during the summer, during the peak summer hours. Uh, we had nothing like that. Uh, we found parking spaces, hiked, uh, had a great time, and we're fitting that in this in between coming back from that and finding out from the x-rays if my older son broke his arm. Yeah, hopefully good news coming on that front, but uh, might be a few weeks before he's back swinging the bat again. Yeah, either way, even if it's just a bad sprain or a hairline or something, uh, it doesn't look like a full sort of tibia, uh, not tibia is the leg, right? So no, tibia is the arm, right? I think the tibia and the fibula are in the leg. Oh, uh, well, anyway, we're not forearm. doctors. It's not like a full forearm <laughs> fracture. If it is, it's something smaller, but. Sometimes that can be just as bad, so we're just uh, we're gonna find out this afternoon. He's not, you know, rolling around in pain or anything. He's got it splinted, and you know, you get him some Advil, and he's doing okay. Hanging in there. All right. Well, let's get things going for this episode. We've got a couple of things on the rundown that are kind of like the pitching spinoffs of an episode we did last week. Last week we were talking about. You know, hitters chasing outside the zone and maybe collectively or at least in, in my case being quick to penalize hitters who are too aggressive in their approach we explained why that might be problematic thinking so we're going to take a look at pitchers and look at what they do as far as getting whiffs inside and outside the strike zone so in this case we're talking about o swing percentage for pitchers and zone contact percentages just as the case was for hitters you can look at the baseball info solutions version or the Statcast version when you're looking at fan graphs these are the Statcast numbers that i pulled for the rundown use whatever set you want but just if you hear a discrepancy that's probably where it came from and what i wanted to talk about first is you know if you make an assumption that a pitcher who gets chases outside the zone and also does well inside the zone so they have a high o swing percentage and a low zone contact percentage can you make an assumption that those are the most dominant pitchers in the game because they can beat you in the zone and they can beat you outside of the zone. They throw pitches that are so nasty, you're swinging even if it's not in the zone, right? That's a great combination of things to have. Is there any problematic thinking in wanting to put that combination of skills into a dominant sort of bucket? I don't think so. I mean, getting uh, getting whiffs in the zone is, uh, I think, traditionally thought of as as high stuff. You know, that's. I mean, what if you're getting whiffs in the zone? Then uh, they can't take it, and when they swing, they're missing. You know, so I don't know um, that it's not. I, I think of that as high stuff. I think of getting chases as more command. That's you know making people think it's a strike and and kind of nibbling or being close in that nice shadow uh, area around the. There's a a definition of zones at at Savant where one is shadow, which is kind of a little bit inside the zone, a little bit outside the zone, a little band around it. Um, and the shadow zone, uh, that's where the command artists live. And I think, you know, whiffs in zone is where the high stuff guys live. Yeah, I think that's a good way of kind of relating it back to the ways we usually talk about pitchers. I was surprised looking at the starters, looking for guys that do both of these things. It's not surprising to see Spencer Strider up there. 37% O swing percentage, 75.2% zone contact percentage. Just phenomenal. 
Joe Ryan, not that far behind, has actually has a better O swing percentage than Strider, 38.2%, slightly higher zone contact percentage at 78.8%. Joe Ryan is just the mystery wrapped in a riddle because some of the other names that popped on the list, Yuri Perez, Shane McClanahan, Tyler Glass now, they all made sense to me. Those were names I expected to see there. But two twins, Joe Ryan and Bailey Ober, were both surprises to me relative to my expectations for how those guys work and just how good their stuff actually is. Yeah, well, Spencer Strider and Joe Ryan have the first and second most raw whiffs uh, in the zone on the fastball. Um, And so that's, uh, I think, a big part of why they're so good. You know, just looking at this list of in-zone whiffs on the fastball, there's a lot of names that you would expect. Garrett Cole is here. Freddie Peralta is here. You know, Zach Wheeler is here. Those are all really good fastballs. There's some interesting uh, names, though. Also, Lance Lynn is here. George Kirby is here. And we're thinking if in-zone contact rates are, you know, such a great proxy for stuff, why is George Kirby here? It's not that he has bad stuff. It's just that most people think of him as command forward. Lance Lynn being here, he's mostly command forward. Luis Castillo is third in raw whiffs on the fastball in the zone. Um, I guess you could think of him as a high stuff guy, but I, I, I think of him sort of as a hybrid guy. So, you know, you know, a lot of this also has to do with, you know, how much they throw it. Deception. I think Joe Ryan is here more out of deception. Spencer Strider is here out of Release point plus movement plus velo, you know, what we kind of consider as stuff. So, um, yeah, but it's definitely some interesting names. Like, if you can get whiffs on the fastball in the zone, you're a good pitcher. The only pitchers that I'm looking at here that are at all iffy are uh, Christian Javier with the seventh most uh, in zone fastball with forcing fastball whiffs, Lance Lynn, I guess, uh, at fourth, and Joe Ryan, of course, is, is struggling a little bit. Yeah, before his IL stint really hit a, a bumpy patch in his season, kind of going back to June or so, Ober didn't pop on that fastball list. Did he? I don't think I heard his name when you were going through that group. I mean, how is he doing this? It's a higher zone contact percentage than the other players in the group, but it's the O swing, getting guys to chase outside the zone with a pretty good, better than average zone contact percentage. That's the part that surprised me. I'm surprised he does both of those things well. Over is 28th. He has, he's pitched a little bit less than some other guys. He, um, let me see if I can uh, limit it to pitch type so I can see. Yeah, yeah. so I have pitch percentage in here, but the thing that you're doing on Savant, you have to, you have to change total pitch parameters. That, if you're doing a query on Savant, you, there's a box that says change total pitch parameters. That is your denominator if you're doing pitch percentage. So if I want to know uh, how many whiffs they're getting on four seamers in the zone, I have to put pitch type and game day zones in in the pitch parameters to put them at the bottom. The denominator is swings and misses divided by fastballs in the zone. Uh, When I do that, Spencer Strider has a 19% swing and miss on his fastball in the zone. That's really good. That is sexy. <laughs> I imagine that's reliever-esque, right? I mean, I would assume that some of your top relievers are in that range. Yeah, okay. So I have to up the minimum results so that I'm not just looking at these guys. Ryan Ryder has one pitch in the zone and one whiff. He's amazing. Uh, but if I change the number of results, let's see if, well, how I do here. Oh, I did it too high. There's only five guys. Uh, <laughs> hold on, Spencer Strider again, number one. Uh, here we go. I did it. Uh, minimum number twenty-five. So, uh, Kendall Graveman, thirty-nine point seven. Wow. I guess what I well, guess what we're seeing here is that he doesn't throw the forcing that much, still. And when he does, he gets whiffs. So he must be a, it, you know, must be that people aren't looking for that. That's isn't that amazing that he's number one in percentage of. Swing and miss on forcing fastballs in the zone. Yeah, you could have given me a hundred guesses and I wouldn't have even considered <laughs> Kendall Graveman for the last one. You know, around him are David Bednar and Sir Anthony Dominguez and Aroldis Chapman and Felix Bautista. You know, like, okay, duh. Uh, number one uh, starter is, by percentage, it might surprise you, he's on the Mariners. Kirby? Woo! Brian Woo, nice. 
I'm surprised by that. Number two is Luis Castillo. Uh, Sandy Alcantara is up there. He see that's the the that's the Kendall Graveman effect, right? These pitches all still fit together. It's really hard to pull pitching apart like this. You know what I mean? It's like why does Sandy Alcantara uh, have such a high whiff rate on four seamers in the zone? It's because he doesn't he he uses the four seam four whiffs. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to find Ober here. It's a 91.3 mile per hour four seamer from Bailey Ober. It's just like so unspectacular by Velo, but he's tall, right? Seven four extension. Like that's yeah, part of it. He's he's pretty good. He's pretty good by percentage. Uh, it's 16. percent He has the same in zone whiff rate on four seam fastballs as Zach Wheeler. Yeah, I wouldn't have expected it just by Velo alone. <laughs> so there's so much more going on in Bailey Ober in this case. Again, the extension would probably be the the biggest reason why that's happening it's all at the top of the zone you know one thing i do notice when i watch bailey over pitch is he's he's really good at commanding the ball at the top of the zone and i think you'll find that even while we're trying to sort of be like oh is this a proxy for stuff we'll find that like some of these guys are on here for command bailey over i think is just a guy who can keep the ball from being a ball and also place the ball in that sort of top bit of the zone that is just really hard to hit i mean career 4.9 percent walk rate it fits i know command and control are not the same thing but they're often related you see guys with good command usually run pretty low walk rates ober does that does get into some home run trouble on occasion we've seen that in multiple seasons now from him in the big leagues so that could be a legitimate downside to what he does but it's a good overall package of skills that overbrings the table the relievers you mentioned before felix bautista i think has made the case to be the first reliever off the board by just pure stuff right he's absolutely filthy you can't hit him in the zone you can't hit him outside the zone you really can't hit felix bautista's stuff anywhere if you're starting to think about relievers for the future or you're trying to trade for the best reliever available in your league is it safe to say Felix Bautista has become that guy? Because the results are just ridiculous. Totally. Um, I, I, uh, I think so. I, I, I'm all over him. The only, I mean, there's those knees, I guess. Uh, but, you know, when you're talking about that sort of stuff, I mean, everybody's got something. I tried to do something where I focused even tighter in. So let's say, you know, isn't it sort of compelling to say that if I can get a whiff on, in the heart of the zone, then that's got to be stuff, right? Yeah. Aroldis uh, Chapman, number one in uh, whiffs on fastballs, heart of the zone. Rafael Montero, two. It's interesting. David Bednar, Carlos Estevez, Brian Wu, Ryan Stanek, Luis Castillo, Paul Seawald, Sandy Alcantara, Ho, Joe Jimenez, uh, Pablo Lopez, Craig Kimbrell, Tanner Scott. Yeah. This is a stuff list. Yeah. Gavin Williams, number one in the number three three or four starting pitchers, Gavin Williams. So this, I think, is a little bit closer to just stuff. I guess the only thought I have on that for now would be that if you if you are getting whips in the heart of the zone, you probably don't throw pitches in the heart of the zone very often. So could that be very risky or very Set noisy? By other things? or Yeah, I just, I just wonder if that might be a, a noisy thing to consider. Or does it mean you have bad command too? I mean, there's a role as Chapman has bad command. Bednar is not great. Stanek has bad command. Like there are definitely some bad command guys here. Craig Kimbrell has bad command. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's your stuff is so good that your command doesn't even matter because guys are still swinging through it. Yeah. And then, you know, so the opposite side, so you always want to look at the opposite side of the list and be like, okay, did I do this right? You know, Jesus Lizardo has the worst has the highest contact rate on forcing fastballs in the zone. Now, actually, I think you could make the argument that his stuff on his fastball is not that great. It's it's not great shape. But the number two is Blake Snell. And number three is Kevin Gossman. And number six is Zach Gallen. This is the entire zone, not the heart of the zone right now? This is hard. Oh, this, this is a heart. Hard. Okay. The people do damage against Logan Gilbert and Hunter Brown in the heart of the zone. See, but that's where I think my 
original question kind of came from. It's like, hey, look, I think you could be a good pitcher. And if you're in the heart of the zone, bad stuff's going to happen to you in most circumstances. Yeah. You have to be throwing one of the absolute filthiest pitches in the league to get away with pitching there. And sometimes you just get lucky because hitter guesses wrong. It's, you know, whatever it might be, you can get away with it. But this seems like a, a very slippery slope skills wise. Yeah. I, number, uh, the, the number one guy in terms of number of pitches in the heart of the zone is Spencer Strider, 478 fastballs in the middle of the zone. That's because he only throws two pitches. Um, he still does well there. Kevin Gossman. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Spencer Strider's number one in total fastballs in the center of the zone. And he still gets 17.6% whiff rate on those pitches. Kevin Gossman is number two with 448 forcing fastballs in the middle of the zone. And he gets half the, the, the swing and miss that Spencer Strider does. I wonder how much of the, the damage, the occasional damage that does happen to Strider, how much of it happens on those pitches? Yes. Yes. I'm going to do some included stats and just do slugging percentage. Because if I do this and... Oh, I can't get slugging percentage too because I have swing and miss. Well, anyway, I, I think that, you know, the fact that Spencer Strider, Kevin Gossman are up here and Joe Ryan in terms of total pitches in the middle of the zone. Mackenzie Gore is up here. Uh, Ryan Nelson is up here. Michael Kopech. You know, Christian Javier is here. It's, uh, you, I mean, you, it, it's, it's going to sound dumb, but you like, you do want to avoid the middle of the zone. <laughs> I was not questioning that at any point uh, during the the process of building out this episode. I, I didn't I didn't have the yeah. the absolute galaxy brain moment where I said maybe it's okay <laughs> to be in the middle of the zone. Like no, it's it's not. You don't you don't want to be in there. But it's worse. It's worse for some guys than it is for others. Like yeah, it's worse for Zach Gallen, you know, than it is for uh, Garrett Cole and and Spencer Strider. So but that's stuff. That that's a difference in stuff. The other core group of players that got the wheels spinning for me today when you look at the leaderboard just the overall war leaderboard for starting pitchers for this year gallon is number two over at Fangraphs. Uh, sunny gray pablo lopez are five and six kirby is seventh in zach, what in, in war uh zach oh, eflin yeah. is ninth this is a different group of pitchers that are, it's popping this year i realize war is not necessarily fantasy value but it, it's just these are mostly guys almost entirely guys that are going to go earlier in drafts next year than they did this year, or they're much more expensive to trade for in a late season trade. If you're trying to get pitching because they've been so good so far this year and they all kind of fall into this group where they're good at getting chases, but they do get hit a lot more when they're in the zone. So kind of balancing this out. If you, if you have excellent command, which I think would be reflected by uh, either low walk rate, or a low home run rate, or both, and or a lot of grounders. If you have some other related metrics that kind of connect to this, are you okay buying into sustained growth or at least maintaining this level in the future for this group of guys that will go, again, much, much earlier in drafts? I, I, Justin Steele's up there, too, in, in war this year. He's, he's been a tricky pitcher for us all year. It goes back to the second half of last season. Does this actually work, getting those chases outside the zone, but being more hittable than you'd expect inside the zone? I mean, my research from stuff and, and, and location suggests that, like, you know, those guys are an iffier bet. But I did, for the purposes of this uh, podcast, look back at a, an old piece from Bill Petty. Now, this, is, this was done in 2012. It's possible things have changed a little bit since then. But I was surprised to find that uh, O contact and O swing have the same year-to-year -year stickiness or not exactly the same or just below K percentage. So K percentage has a 0.82 uh, correlation year-to-year -year for pitchers. And that's why we focus on it. It's one of the best. If you eliminate uh, pitch type metrics, like, you know, curveball percentage or whatever. The only thing better than K percentage is ground ball percentage. So those two things are super highly correlated year to year. 
Now, right below K percentage is swing strike rate. And that's why I looked this up, because I wanted to be like, hey, is swing strike rate just capturing all that we're talking about here and doing it better and stickier year to year and becomes reliable faster and is therefore just a, a you know superior metric? Let's put that aside, because I'm surprised to find that swing strike rate 0.81, O swing 0.79, and O contact 0.77. So it looks like the ability to get batters to chase is a somewhat is a pretty sticky year to year ability. And uh, so if that's the case, then it's the type of pitchers that do get those chases, you know, wh whether it's tunneling or command, uh, they seem like maybe they're a better bet than I expected. It's a tricky group. I mean, Aaron Nola's in here and Joe Musgrove's in here. Garrett Whitlock also in there as a kind of smaller inning sample sort of guy with that high O swing and high zone contact. Logan Webb, that makes sense to me as the prototype because Logan Webb gets a ton of ground balls. So if, you, if you're a ground ball pitcher, you're going to have higher zone contact percentage. That's just part of how you work. And I started thinking about this over the weekend. A lot of what happens in player development is about making your stuff better, missing bats, trying to strike guys out. That's the best outcome. No contact, nothing bad happens, right? Mm -hmm. But it might not be the best thing for injury, as we've talked about on this show for years, because your pitch count can go up higher, and you know, you're, you're not as efficient as you could be. Like, maybe the ideal... Some of the pitches that you throw four whiffs might also be higher stress on your elbow. Right, like so th there, could be, uh, there could be an approach to pitching... That is, and this is, some people are going to say, this is what it was like in the 70s and 80s. Maybe. I mean, <laughs> maybe some of the old stuff with the new stuff is actually the right way to go where you make pitchers more efficient. You find ways to say, I'm in the zone, or e even, even these group of guys that people might be skeptical of for a variety of different reasons. Maybe this is actually a more sustainable approach in general to pitching because it's less about racking up whiffs and more about being efficient with your pitches, getting through your start, getting through six innings without throwing 110 pitches, just getting it done, right? Because I, I like this group overall, and yet, other than like Aaron Nola's peak season, I'm not sure I'd look at any of those guys and say, definitely SP1 stuff for these guys, even though they're getting SP1-type results. Yeah, I mean, it's... I, I feel better about the group that combines great Z contact with uh, great chase rates. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's like that. That's always been like, that's in my head. That's that's the ideal. But that group. But Nolan and Eflin are similar. They're right next to each other. When I when I just look at qualified starters and I do it by O swing percentage, Nolan and Eflin are right next to each other, and they're both guys that also have you know eighty six, eighty seven, eighty eight percent zone contact. Um, so, you know, and then, but, but then there's Merrill Kelly right there with them. And do I want to bet on the Merrill Kelly profile year in and year out? We talked about him maybe two months ago and it's a really deep mix of pitches, which is something you generally like. Mm -hmm. It's improvement pretty late in his career. So that's a little surprising, but yeah, 33.1% O swing percentage. That's pretty good. 83.1% for the zone contact percentage. Not that bad. Not bad. That actually, that's more like the first group than the second group. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Okay, let me, I'm going to go high zone contact. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing it by zone contact. Who are the pitchers I like here? I don't like Kyle Freeland. I don't like Jordan Lyles. I don't like Brady Singer. I don't like Patrick Corbin. I, I skipped a name already. I don't, I, mm, Okay, so now we got Logan Webb is fourth, Alex Cobb is sixth, Taiwan Walker is seventh, you know. They don't necessarily get a lot of chases other than Logan Webb. So there's still a way to be an okay pitcher in the zone. It is to be a ground ball pitcher. Right. And that's that's not a not a big surprise, right? If if you're uh, going this to is where Bryce Elder is, look at that. There's gotta be some threshold where if you're gonna get hit in the zone this much, you have to get a certain number of, of ground balls or a certain ground ball rate for it to all work out. Right. And is Bryce Elder's 52% th there? Because Logan Webb's at 61% ground balls. Right. You know? he's, he's 61. Marcus Strom is 58. 
Fromber usually runs pretty high. I think when we talked about Fromber last, his ground ball rate, yeah, it was more normal than 53.5%. That's very normal, but his typical marks are in the 60s. Like he was 66.5% last year for the ground ball rate, over 200 innings. So that to me, like Fromber and Logan Webb are very similar. Different handedness, but similar in that they can actually get a decent yeah. number of strikeouts and really do a good job of limiting damage and contact with their approaches and their pitch mix. Yeah, but what is Justin Steele? Justin Steele has an 89% zone contact and a 35.8% uh, chase rate. According, this is, uh, we're using slightly different numbers. That's my fault. But um, So uh, he is, Justin Steele is a high chase, high contact guy with a, with an okay ground ball rate. Do you believe in Justin Steele? I'm starting to. I, I think the the general sort of rule I have is that you don't have to do both of these things well. You just have to do at least one of them well. And then how your mm. stuff interacts and your command, the other factors are the things that we need to be looking at before we make a decision on a pitcher. So I'm not willing to dismiss a pitcher because of failure in one of these areas. Steel is really how about tough somebody to who fails in most of these areas? Kyle Bradish. Oh, is he bad in all of them? He's average at chase. He's the 19th worst zone contact among qualified pitchers, and he has a 48% ground ball rate. That's a, that's a rough combination. I mean, we had a question about Bradish, too, while I'm, while I'm thinking through my answer. Bradish's mm. fastball stuff plus has been better over the past month. And the question was basically like, how, <laughs> how does that happen in season? Does it mean anything? You know, the one fifteen fastball stuff plus over the last month, is that a thing that you can reasonably look at and say, there's some adjustments and this is real and this is sustainable. Or is it just sort of a normal fluctuation you could have? Cause I think in the past you mentioned Bradish has this kind of a, an average or worse fastball. And part of what makes him effective is that he doesn't throw it that often. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's an actual pretty simple answer here. Uh, is he's throwing the fastball harder than he has for most of the season? That works. So if you, especially if you break it by month, it's pretty obvious to see. Uh, he went from ninety four three in the first month of the season to ninety four eight now. By game, there's a little bit of up and down with the pitch, but it's generally getting harder. And it's generally getting more horizontal movement. So at the beginning of the season, it was kind of, uh, we talked about this a fair amount where we talked about like he hadn't found his horizontal movement on that fastball. Um, and he had a, basically a zero horizontal movement. And he's added two and a half inches of horizontal movement since then. Um, so it's still a little inconsistent movement wise, but... Uh, it's inconsistent in the better direction, like more and more movement. Um, and uh, there, it's possible he hasn't found uh, the ideal uh, movement for this pitch yet. So I guess it's possible that he, that he could stick around at 110 if he kind of solidifies the gains he's made with this pitch. I'd like to see improvement in one of these areas before being excited about Bradish at a much increased price for next year. So he's probably for now an early avoid if we're looking ahead to next season, even though it's been a great season for him so far. And, and what he's doing is obviously very valuable to the Orioles to this point. What about this group? The low O swing percentage, but the low zone contact percentage group. Shohei Otani, 25.8% O swing percentage, very low, 82% zone contact rate. It's very good. Blake Snell's in this group too. Michael Kopech kind of fits the same sort of description. Nestor Cortez, not all the same by stuff, but Otani and Snell, I almost wonder if guys don't chase against them because they're so filthy. They're just looking for something. They're looking for something closer to the heart of the zone. They're not looking for something on the edges of the zone. And Snell's reputation as a guy that issues a lot of walks would lead you as a hitter to go up to the plate thinking, if it's close, I'm not swinging, right? I'm, I'm, I'm letting... I'm letting stuff that's on the edges go. And, and maybe the approach shapes it. Well, the game plan. 
I mean, the game plan, Shohei Otani, you know, all the things are great about him, except maybe his command. It's not his greatest his, his greatest feature. And Blake Snell, it's very, really obvious that it's not, command is not his best feature. Um, and Dylan Cease is on this high, uh, low zone contact, contact um, you know, middling or, or bad chase rate. He's on this list. Kodai Senga is on this list. So there are definitely uh, some pitchers here that have poor command. Uh, Yusei Kikuchi is on this list. They have poor command and uh, you know what the game plan is. What the hitters are trying to do is make him throw you a strike. Um, and when uh, these pitchers do it because they have good enough stuff, uh, they can get whiffs. But they just, I think it's a little bit about how poor their command is and what the game plan is against them. Yeah, I figured that was you know, likely part of how some of these numbers take shape. You have a reputation, it's in the game plan. Teams go ahead and, and make some adjustments. Uh, I wondered what would happen if you're bad at both of these things. You, you don't get swings and misses outside the zone, and you hit a lot in the zone. Those are your worst pitchers generally. But a few names that, that actually popped that were bad in both, the worst in both is Adam Wainwright at this stage of his career. 20.3% O-swing percentage, 92.7% zone contact percentage. It just doesn't work. One year too many probably is the, the best explanation for that. But uh, seeing younger guys like Matt Manning on on that part of the, the leaderboard is a Brady concern. Brady Singer, once again, here. Jake Irvin. Yeah, Jake Irvin. Matthew Liebertor, big hit for Lodum in its early days. Matthew Liebertor. Cheery knows. Uh, Mitch Keller was still bad in both, even this year, which was a little surprising to me. I would have figured something had changed. I would have thought, actually, the zone contact percentage was better for Mitch Keller because I've watched him a few times this year, and the stuff has looked pretty good. But a 24.6% O-swing percentage and an 86% zone contact percentage for Keller, which is just baffling. I think the first number is poor command. This is something we knew about Mitch Keller, right? We knew he had poor command. The second number surprises me because I've, I've sorted it in my head as someone who has good stuff and poor command. It's better. It's better than it was. 85.6% is the best zone contact percentage of Mitch Keller's career. Yeah. And it, what's also surprising to me is that as someone who I think of as high stuff and, and low command, he's found this relative success by throwing many more types of pitches <laughs> uh, and you would have thought if he's high stuff then isn't he going to be more like spencer strider where he just throws a, a a ton of his best pitches at the middle of the zone and you know doesn't get chases but gets whiffs but he's not that guy either so this is the best version of keller and i like him and i thought this could happen but i'm not sure there's another level that's probably fine if there's not i guess the the question is you know you look at his last 14 starts now kind of cut his season in half go back to the start of june it's a 511 era since then home run rates up a little bit 1.3 homers per nine over three walks per nine the underlying skills are not that bad he should have a better result than this 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 doesn't add up like it just it still seems like through all of it and this includes a stretch for the first couple months where it, it we had we had conversations. Mitch Keller figured it out. It, it's all it's all happening. This is the guy. This is the guy we wanted to begin his season. His first twelve starts, eleven Ks per nine. It was a ninety-three to seventeen strikeout to walk in seventy-four and two-thirds innings. Three twenty-five ERA. It was deserved, right? He was keeping the ball in the park. Everything was working. So the thing people are going to wonder about is, can he take that and the way he got there? Can he do something like that over a full season? Or is this the adjustment phase where he had a new game plan and the league adjusted to it and the second half results are closer to his new baseline now that the league has seen it for a little while? I, I don't have the, the answer today, but I think that's what people are going to start thinking about as they try and figure out what to do with him going into next season. If I am going to convince myself he has another level, I'm going to convince myself that some of the new pitches he's added over the course of the last two years just need more time and that he will be able to command them a little bit better going forward. So in the last year, he's added the sweeper, the cutter, and the sinker. That's three pitch types that do improve the breadth of his arsenal. And, and you know, honestly, the sweeper is his best pitch uh, and the cutter is maybe his second, second best pitch. So uh you know the fact that he's added these in the last few years 
uh, might give you a little bit of hope. Uh, you know, I'm looking at his stuff plus since June one, and he still uh, you know, scores very highly on the slider. Cutters above 100. The fastballs at 99. Uh, stuff plus. Curveballs 92. Sinkers 90. Like this is totally an arsenal that can work. It's just you know I think he's it's just he's lacking a little bit in just like kind of feel stuff you know like right consistency execution command right it's all kind of lumped together but I I could see myself ending up with more Mitch Keller than I would have thought just because it's there was improvement and the final results still were disappointing in the face of how good the start of his season was that could be a player I end up going after if he's and, and fourth or fifth starting pitcher bias could like also set people next year to be like, ah, oh, man, he really stunk at the end of the season. And they might just sort of remember that part, you know, I get the sense that Mitch Keller's name will be on a factor fluke panel at first pitch Arizona, right? Like he's putting together the resume that will almost certainly make him part of those conversations, conversations, which, hey, by the way, I'll be there in Arizona this year, which is. Nice to get back. I even got the shirt on from the last time I went, the 2019 <laughs> edition. It's got a cactus on it. You can't really see the little ambiguous, like what was on the shirt. It's a cactus. Uh, but yeah, you should check it out. BaseballHQ.com for all the details. The most fun you can have after baseball season ends. Spoiler alert, baseball season never really ends. <laughs> it doesn't around here anyway. But I, you know, I do think, you know, back to a, a sort of an original thing that we were talking about with, you know, O-swing and zone swing and how good they are, some of the stuff just doesn't. So if you're talking about swinging strike rate, you know, swinging strike rate, uh, you know, there's a, there's a concept of, of reliability that, you know, once it passes a threshold for reliability, you can believe that stat more. And the better stats kind of, you know, get close to, you know, 100% reliability. And swing strike rate becomes uh, pretty meaningful. There's more signal than noise. It's, you know, something you would look at uh, pretty quickly. We're talking about uh, 500 pitches. Swing strike rate tells you something. And that's quicker than call strike rate. So even though I love CSW, if you look at swing strike rate before you look at full uh, called strike plus swing strike rates swing strike rates will become meaningful faster so you could you can get a lot out of swing strike rates early in the season so that's good uh and swing strike rate we've just told you is one of the most powerful in terms of staying sticky season to season uh when you look at uh, pitches outside the zone uh so you want to look at swing rates outside the zone it takes uh, 1,000 pitches uh, to become stable, and then it, it doesn't really give you more information past that. It's one of those curves where it gets to stability at 1,000 pitches, and then you get a little bit more information between 1,000 and 1,600, but you don't. You don't really get that much more information. So it's like kind of this weird thing where you kind of have to wait around a, a fair amount. Like 1,000 pitches in, you're talking about 10 starts. So after 10 starts, are you going to look at the pitcher's O-swing rate? You know what I mean? Especially if it's not going to give you much more information. It's not going to get better. That O-swing rate is not going to give you more information going forward. So you kind of have to wait around a decent amount of time. And then, yes, season to season has a surprising amount of stickiness, but it has less stickiness than swing strike rate. So I'm making my case that I think swing strike rate is just... Um, you know, a better stat than these. Yeah, maybe, and, and maybe that's part of this too, is that you're, you're saying you don't have to go all the way down to this level. We have it. It's helpful if you want to do the deeper dive, but it's not necessarily the thing that has to go on your dashboard as you're trying to build your rankings and trying to figure out. It may not matter where you get whiffs as long as you can get them, right? If you consistently yeah. get a high number of whiffs, it's, it's part of your approach. Yeah, so strike rate captures the guys that get chases on switches outside the zone and get chases inside, you know, and, and get things miss inside the zone. So like, what are you going to get from like teasing those things apart? You have to wait longer, you know, maybe when you're trying to identify, maybe what we, what we're doing here is maybe I helping identify some sleepers that next year, could they improve one side of that? Throw fewer pitches inside the zone, you know, if they're bad at contact inside the zone or, you know what I mean? Like it's a little more process related. I, I, I'd be tempted after the 10 starts to say, oh, the O swing percentage is down compared to the previous career norms. Okay. Is 
something with a particular pitch or a location strategy not working the same way? And is that fixable? If it's fixable, it's a buy low, it's a player I'm trading for, it's a player I'm picking up. If we don't think it's fixable, then it's not a player that I'm going to go after and try and add to my roster. Yeah, I mean, there's just the real question of if command is fixable. I tend to, you know, gravitate towards some of these guys. Um, you know, Shintaro Fujinami as a reliever has been interesting. He's been okay. You know, there's been some hiccups. Um, I was thinking about somebody else that just Kyle Harrison. Oh, yeah. 91 location plus on the fastball in the minor leagues. 16% walk rate. He is now a major leaguer. The stuff I think, you know, the stuff, stuff plus, whatever, you know, it's, it's been on the leaderboard for the minor leagues, you know, since we've been updating that. So he's obviously up there, but is he, who is the, and who is the guy we were disagreeing about? Uh, Joe Boyle. Is he Joe Boyle? Is he, uh, you know, what, who is he on the, on these lists? Um, he's obviously going to be a guy that does not get a lot of chase, chase swings, right? <laughs> Because yeah. they're going to step in the box and be like, I know about you. You got to throw me a strike. The Kyle Harrison usage should be pretty interesting, too. A lot of his appearances are, are shorter, right? It fits into that follower bulk arm sort of build oh, that the God. Giants like That's to totally use. That's how they're going to use him. He has one, one outing this season. In every game, I believe he's pitched has been a start this year. One where he's gone five innings. He's got four where he's gone between four or less than five. And everything else under four. Yeah, even going into this one, it's four in the last start. In the last start, but three point one, two, two, three point oh, three point two, two point one. You have to go back to June fifteenth to get to a five. So I don't know if they're managing inning, innings or is preparing him for this role. <laughs> <laughs> he just turned twenty-two, and if you look at the past workloads and think about how they might be working with that, I think last season was the career high. That was a one thirteen between high A and double A. And he's at 67 and two thirds. So they can let him just go as much as he is able to go the rest of the season. And my understanding of, of how the Giants minor league system works is that, you know, they're, they're more conservative, lower in the, uh, in the minors. Uh, when you're talking about 16, 17 year olds, they're just, you know, trying to produce good major leaguers, trying to develop them to the best of their abilities. And then a uh, way more aggressive with strategy in the high minors. Um, and so what you've seen is a bunch of relievers come out of the high minors throwing like 60% sliders where they're like, hey, you know, we're not even sure you're a major leaguer. So let's you, your, your sliders, your best pitch. Let's, you know, see what happens when you throw them 60% of the time, you know, and it, you know, Maurice Jovera came up and did that. And I guess they didn't think he was good enough and they dropped him, but the, the Red Sox picked him up. You know, what I see out of this is they're not sure Kyle Harrison is a top of the rotation guy and they're preparing him for life on the actual San Francisco Giants, which means you might get three innings. Yep. He, this is Sean Manaya. He is your locker buddy. He is going to tell you all about life as a member of the San Francisco <laughs> Giants and how it's different than being on other pitching staffs. Yeah, very different pitchers, uh, very different people, I think, too, but uh, but in the same boat, perhaps. Could be a, a fun sitcom, Harrison and Minaya, just <laughs> hanging out with those two guys. We had a couple other questions that rolled in. We'll save a couple for Wednesday, but there was one about Brady Singer. You mentioned him in passing a little earlier. Rob wanted to know, Singer has been really good for the last month, including a big uptick in K-rate. He was really bad early in the year, so it's been a huge turnaround. Is there anything in the pitch mix or otherwise that explains how Brady Singer has been more effective here over the last well, two months or so? All right. So we're talking uh, since the beginning of July. Yeah. If you go last 60 days, that's a 345 ERA, 112 whip, 52 Ks against 14 walks, just five homers allowed in those 62 and two thirds. I love that this, this yeah. conversation follows one of his worst starts of the entire season. He went three and two-thirds over the weekend against the Cubs, but nevertheless, he's, he has been much I better. Mean, I don't know that I believe in him because, first of all, on every, every time we sorted the list, he was at the bottom. You know, That's why you kept hearing his name in this episode, right? <laughs> right. 
uh, he was, you know, you know, in both poor buckets, I think, for uh, chase and in zone contact. And then uh, when I switch over to the Stuff Plus tab, I even since July 1st in this good stretch, 83 Stuff Plus on the sinker, 84 on the slider, 53 on the changeup. Like, decent, decent amount of command. I think maybe he had a stretch where he's commanding the ball well, but in terms of, you know, do I believe or not, uh, I'm going to say I heartily do not agree that uh, – he's a good bet going forward next year or the rest of the season. He's somebody that I just put firmly in the bucket of, I'd like, I'd almost like, I like Cole Raggins better. Uh, I, I think there's more upside for Cole Raggins to be a, a, a you know, a, a, a front of the rotation type pitcher. Singer to me is in that bucket of he pitches in Kansas city. If he's got the white Sox and the guardians at home this week, you know, I'm into it. Yeah. There's some, cases in deeper leagues where you throw them out there without really worrying about recent form. I think what's tricky is that this recent stretch looked very similar to what he did last year over 153 in the third inning. So it was the best season that I didn't even notice until about September because I had him nowhere. 323 ERA, 114 whip a year ago. You're right in that the the skills this year especially, it's a sub 20% K rate for the season even with the recent improvement. The walk rate's not as good as it was last year. Uh, it's not a case where the swing strike rate's way up and the, the K rate's still just lagging behind. It's basically the same swing strike rate we've always seen from Brady Singer. It's sinker slider, so I think there's there's that. He kind of reminds me of, of the way I looked at Kyle Gibson early in his career. Kyle Gibson came up. It was a prospect in the twin system, had this one window of success that made everyone think that there was that level that he could get back to all the time, and year over year over year, he underperformed even though there were stretches where you could use them, I think that's basically what Brady Singer is right now. The one thing I would say in Gibson's defense is a lot more pitches. I don't remember if he had that many pitches at the beginning of his career, though, or if that's something yeah, that's changed with him over time. He's kept every year, to, you know, kept adding a pitch to stave off Father Time. <laughs> yeah, it was three pitches. Aha, it was, it was fastball slider change up at the beginning of his career. Yeah, now he's like, I've got three different cutters. Tinkering and tinkering <laughs> and tinkering some more. So that's kind of where I'm at with him. Uh, another player that was part of that email, this was from Rob, uh, Luis Severino. He's been horrible all season. Is there anything mm. in the underlying numbers that explains the Severino collapse? It's not It's not obvious to me. Uh, you know, you look at things like uh, velo and movement and... He's not, uh, he's, it's pretty obvious he's not all the way back to, to where he was by a lot of those. Uh, I'm going to do, you know, regular season and I'm going to talk about uh, year to year so I can just look at this. Forcing Velo this year, 96.67. That's his best uh, since 2018. So, you're, but, you know, it's, it's what? It's like his third best or fourth best uh, forcing Velo. So that's not quite it. The one thing that I did notice, and I think about this with James Paxton too, is that his slider velo uh, at 85.3 is the like the second worst of his career. And he, when he was really at his best, Luis Severino had that nasty uh, gyro hard 89 mile an hour slider. And if he's throwing at 85, that means that some of those are 84 and 83, right? If you think about just the distribution of pitches. So we know that around 85 and 86, there's a threshold where, you know, sliders get a lot better if you can throw it far, harder than that. So if he's averaging 85, that means he's throwing, you know, sliders that are 84 and 83 that don't have a lot of movement because they're kind of gyro-ish, kind of like zero, zero zoops, you know? And like, if he's doing that, then uh and he's throwing him 84 83 i would venture to guess that that's maybe the the main place uh that he's lacking will he get it back i just you know when i talked to james paxton he said you know i don't know why uh my fastball velo is back but my slider velo is not he said i wonder that you know they took that they took a little they have this tendon in your wrist that you don't really use uh, and now that when they do Tommy John's now, they take this like tendon that, that you quote unquote don't really use and use that for your new tendon in your arm. Um, and he's like, what if that 
was like helping me throw the slider faster. <laughs> like, what if there is actually uh, some use to that thing? So, uh, but I, I, I think about that with how much I want to trust James Paxton and uh, why Luis Severino uh, has fallen off so much because breaking ball velo is as important as fastball velo. And I think we, a lot of times we look at the fastball and be like, ah, he's 97, what's the problem here? You know, but he's 85 on the fastball. Uh, and I think that's probably the biggest source of drop for him. Yeah, I was thinking about in the context of, of Noah Syndergaard too. I mean, velocity down just everywhere across the board for Syndergaard ever since he came back from his injuries. And it's not that he doesn't throw 97 with his fastball anymore. It's that his slider is slower and his curveball. It's, it's the secondaries. The velo loss on the secondaries is probably burying him more than only losing the velo on the fastball would have. If he... If he if he still like, let's just say he had the same velo on his secondaries, and was throwing ninety two with his fastball, he would just throw the secondaries more, and that would work. But the secondaries aren't as good at this velo as they were at the old velo, so nothing works for him anymore. That said, you know the the stuff plus story under the hood says ninety eight uh, stuff plus fastball, one twenty stuff plus slider, one hundred five stuff plus cutter. These numbers aren't as good as they were before. But he also isn't a guy that has awful awful command. So, um, like I have a place in my heart for Luis Severino. There, he's out there for free in AL labor right now. There's like free. a standing offer that somebody free. can take him off his hands. I don't know if I have the intestinal fortitude uh in labor where i have to put him in my lineup uh to to pick him up but you know he obviously has 12 team upside so if you're in a 12 team and you're out of it and you just have a roster slot that's going to some boring reliever that you're not going to keep you know over the off season why not just pick up severino and leave him on your bench or if you want to lose games you're in, in tankathon like you know throw <laughs> severino but i'm i'm not sure that the career is over. You know what I mean? Like I, I may have some shares of Luis Severino, especially if, you know, what if he signs with the pirates next year? There's, there just, seems to be like a highway from New York to, to Pittsburgh. And I think there literally signs is the pirates next year. Like he has a nice home park. What if he comes in the spring? He's throwing 86, 87 on the slider again. Like, you know, might be into it. Yeah, I think the, there is a little literal highway between uh, those two places. So <laughs> 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 ways to get from here to there more than uh, just airplanes in this case. But it's with, the Ivan Nova highway. Yes. <laughs> Severino home against the Nats this week. Sure. Why not? Next week's going to be a two step at the Tigers at the Astros. If look, if you're playing catch up or if even if you're just you're not currently in the money and bulk is the only way you're going to get there. Mm. There, that's the dart throw. Like that's one of the guys you say. Who else are they gonna throw out there? They're unfortunately they're throwing him like three and four and two innings per start. So you might not even get that much bulk out of two but starts. If he pitches well, they'll leave him in because he's a pending yeah. free agent, and they just they're just trying to get through the end of the season now. It's just the it's survival yeah. mode for the Yankees. We are gonna go yeah. uh, on our way out the door. You can uh, get a subscription to the Athletic for two dollars a month for the first year at theathletic.com/slash rates and barrels. You can find us on. Twitter at Enoceris and at Derek Van Riper. The pod is at Rates and Barrels. If we set up other accounts for the pod, I will relay them here. That's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.